High-performing teams have human leadership. Human leadership creates trust, purpose, and belonging at all levels. We've developed three core workshops to elevate your team with human leadership. Find out how to bring human leadership to your workplace at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast. I'm Sally Clark, and today Alexis Zana and I are speaking with Jean Marie De Giovanna about the role of personal transformation in leadership, how being a generalist can positively impact the way we lead, the intersection of emotional intelligence and psychological safety, and the essential inner work that is required of all of us if we want to lead with authenticity and alignment. Jean Marita Giovanna is an international keynote speaker, leadership development expert, certified executive coach, and best selling author. With her work on Renaissance leadership and over 25 years of experience across the globe, she helps leaders and their teams shift the way they think, lead, and communicate to rapidly create a culture of trust, collaboration, and innovation. Jean Marie speaks from the heart sharing her direct insights, and our conversation was peppered with practical takeaways for both Alexis and I. We're sure it will be for you too. Let's delve in. Welcome, Jean-Marie, to the We Are Human Leaders podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you here with us today. And before we dive in a little bit more to some of the incredible work that you're doing now, we'd love for you to set the scene for us a little bit and share, if you will, a little bit about your purpose and what drives you and your incredible work. Sure. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. And Basically, uh, boy, where to start? So I actually, uh, I I share this piece of my journey because I actually study computer science. So (laughs) when you think of, you know, the people's past, it has nothing to do with uh, the leadership development work that I do today. However, it has shaped and formed everything up until this point. And so, um, you know, kind of in a nutshell with my journey is I started out in high tech and I kind of moved up that corporate ladder, and, you know, got to be the a, a senior technical architect. And that was sort of like the highest position at this firm I was at. Um, that was an incredible IT consulting firm that I became, I was able to become one of the founding partners when we started uh, with 90 people in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then nine years later, we became over 4,000 worldwide. And so when you think of that growth and the opportunity that I had there, I pretty much moved about three years in, realized, you know, the tech is okay, is good, but I was missing working with people. I really started to realize that my passion is working with the people side. And so I had an opportunity to run one of the service lines that required delivering training to the teams, 
creating methodology, working with clients and presenting the methodology to clients. And then I, I, it was kind of like a dream job. It was combining my desire for uh, process work, for training and, and helping people see things differently, and for um, getting experience in presenting and facilitating teams. So through the work I did there, um, I then moved into a lot of culture because we were growing so rapidly. We could not sustain the growth. So if you can recall back in the 90s, you know, high tech was just booming. And so I had the opportunity along with five other colleagues who'd been with the company quite a while to um, come offline and do our own change management. So I helped create the core values, the guiding principles, the competencies, and then ultimately um, designed the core curriculum for business problem solving for consultants. So, you know, lo and behold, in my late 20s, I was (laughs) suddenly training 100 employees a month thinking that was normal to do on your own. Um, So I just, it was an amazing experience that gave me everything I needed to start my business. And I was able to work overseas with the company in my last assignment uh, on the regional management team in Stockholm, Sweden. And so it's it was sort of, um, and it's come full circle this year because I got to see those uh, that team and, and the colleagues back there for the first time in 25 years. So it just goes to show like the connections that were built, the 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 skills and expertise I gained through that organization helped me to start my business in 1998. So I've been in business for two decades and, and it sort of has transformed since then. I really love how you uh, are able to now look back and kind of see how all of these pieces of your career are sort of sort of meshing together now to really inform the work, the work you're doing now. And I was wondering if you could just talk us through a little bit about your transition from that work at, at Cambridge Tech to what you're doing today and, and a little bit about the, the, the personal transformation that informed that, that transition. Yes, sure. Um, one of the things that is so important to me is a value of growth and development. And there was a point in my career where in when I was in corporate where I realized, what is my purpose? What am I really here for? Um, there's something more. And that's when I then uh, hired myself a coach. I went to a lot of growth and development programs. And um, so if you if I kind of look back at that time, um, what I realized around my own personal transformation is it wasn't until I got clear on what is it that I'm passionate about. Like my career up until that point had been what other people wanted of me. And also I followed where I was good, where I was good at, what I was good at. And, you know, and, and we can follow that path, but sometimes every, you know, the things that we're good at are not necessarily the things that we want to continue to do or enjoy doing, and then we can get pigeonholed. And so my kind of personal transformation started with the self-inquiry, like what's next for me? What, what really brings me joy? And I then helped, uh, I, I worked with a coach to discover my passion, which was really to help other people think differently. And so as long as I then had avenues for that, it worked out great. And um, and then as I started my business, I discovered more and more about 
what are the programs I love to deliver that align my purpose, my skills and gifts, and make a difference for, for those I serve. And when those three kind of started matching up, then I was most fulfilled. And to me, that's kind of the secret of, of fulfillment is if we can have those three match up. That's so powerful, Jean-Marie, because I think so many of us have this moment in our career where we realize our purpose maybe isn't tied to our skill set. Like certainly that was my experience. I think you spend time studying, going through university, um, depending the sort of roles you then step into, and you assume that what you're passionate about should be directly linked to your skill set. And I too had a real personal transformation. My The beginning of my journey was in marketing and now I'm in organizational psychology. And I realized the whole time for me, the underlying key theme was what makes people tick and how can I serve them? But it took me <laughs> 12 years of discovery to realize like, actually, wow, it's actually the people that I'm most interested in. It's not necessarily how to market to them or how to sell advertising to them or whatever the case is. So I love that you've um, been on that journey and found that connection between your skills, your experience, what you love doing and how you can serve people. And that really sort of manifests into that greater idea of purpose. I think that's so powerful. And it leads me to my next question to an extent. And that's this idea that, you know, you, you speak a lot about this idea of leaders being sort of more generalist rather than very niche specific. And I'd just love to learn a little bit more about what you mean by this and get an understanding of how being a generalist might positively impact the way that we lead. Mm. Yes. Um, it's interesting because, you know, Back in my corporate days, the goal was to become an expert. Like, that's what was valued at that time, you know, for many decades. And um, what I started discovering is, especially in the consulting world, is the leaders who were more agile, who could really handle and deal with all different situations, who could manage all different kinds of people, those were the ones and also who were committed to growth and development, meaning they were open to learning new skills, those are the ones that were more, um, they were more resilient. Um, they could handle a lot more varied leadership positions. And I'm not saying that, um, and I, I do want to caveat that, that um, experts and, and niche-specific uh, leaders and employees are critical to our organizations. Um, but as we look into, you know, moving more into this 21st century and the new really modern leader, um, we need someone who's agile, who can kind of bounce back and forth and have those abilities. And so that's kind of what also informed me of the body of work I created around Renaissance leaders, because rena to me the Renaissance and Renaissance leaders of the time of that time had skills that were deep and wide, not just deep. Yeah, I love that. So it's about not just capitalizing or leaning into your expertise, but ensuring that you have, I guess we're still calling them soft skills. I'd like to think of them as core competencies, but the mindset and the behavioral tendencies that allow you to adjust where you need to, to pivot, to iterate, to adapt really to the situation, to the market, to what the team's calling for. I think that's a really, really powerful connection between those two. Yeah. And if I could add one, one thing is, um, it's funny because when you mentioned soft skills, 
what really comes to mind too, when I really think of the bigger picture is emotional intelligence. And what I can say is of the 20 something years I have been now focusing on leaders and leadership development, I've kind of come down (laughs) to two specific skills that are critical and then everything else can build upon them. And one is emotional intelligence and one is psychological safety. And if we have both of those two things, in my mind, honestly, anything and everything is possible. I would agree. And I, what are your thoughts? Do you feel EQ is a precursor to psychological safety? I, I have the feeling that it is. Yes, I, I would say so. Um, because without, and I think of, you know, EQ includes several different um, areas, but one of the most critical is self-awareness. And without self-awareness, their transformation change cannot happen. It's just not possible. I think that's uh, exactly why the self-leadership or self-awareness component is such an important part of, of, of our work and certainly a part of my own journey. I think it really, uh, we have this idea of leadership is this very sort of external concept where we're leading others. And um, But I think what you're speaking to also with that sense of agility that people have that you naturally to be agile and to be able to respond in the present moment to situations as they arise requires that self-awareness. You know, we have to be very self-aware of our own uh, responses, triggers, um, reactions, uh, you know, the way that we might tend to respond to different situations. So I think that's such a key sort of component of it. And it also sort of makes me think of uh, something that you've also touched on in your work, which is about focusing on the being in the human So, you know, you've got this extensive body of work in people and culture. I'd just love to understand a little bit more about what you mean by focusing on that that being a component of of our humanity. Sure. Um, So kind of going back to that time of, um, you know, the era where productivity was so key and and we valued people for what they did and the accomplishments and the results and profits and we still do and it's critical to do that but what i i mean the sil- the gift of have of of the pandemic in a way has been that leaders and organizations are now needing to wake up to the fact that we are hiring human beings. We're not hiring human doings. And and if we continue to put profit before people, we lose our people. And we see that clearly in the great resignation or whatever term people want to use. Employees, we as human beings are no longer tolerating the kind of leaders who, you know, look at people as cogs in a wheel to, you know, increase the stock. And, and, and the irony of it all in when I think about it is that when we simply treat people as human beings and honor that the humanity that we that we are everything will be taken we'll we'll create profit we'll create need we'll we'll um we'll be successful um and so so one of the things that I teach in my programs is, you know, when you want to get clear on what results you want to produce, great, get clear on that. And then the next question I always ask is, who would you need to be to achieve those results? Because if you simply just focused on practicing that being, the results actually show up. It's like magic, but it's really 
pretty logical, actually. Um, so I just, and the other piece I would add is, I feel like we are moving into an age of, you know, we're in a rebirth of humanity, really. And, um, and that's why I love, you know, I've been, uh, I developed this body of work on Renaissance leadership five years ago, but it's funny because now it's almost becoming a lot more heard and seen because the Renaissance was a rebirth of humanity and we are kind of moving into our next Renaissance in a way. Yeah, you're so right. And I think, you know, obviously there's been a big catalyst in the last few years of this quick um, and very swift shift. But I loved what you mentioned around this idea of the you need to be the person that's actually capable of driving the organizational change. And certainly when we look at change management and, you know, organizational consultancy as a biggest sort of field, so many change initiatives fail because the second that a consultant leaves an organization, there's no sustaining behavior beneath that because there's been no actual human change. There's been structural change, perhaps strategic change. And unfortunately, I've been on the receiving end, on the giving end of change management strategies. I've worked in local government and seen what it's like to have people come in and start shifting everything, changing everything. There's perhaps no buy-in. Leaders don't actually overhaul who they are to be the person they need to be to sustain that. So it kind of has this real lackluster feel to it. People are left like uninspired, disenchanted, and they're not actually seeing what change looks like. And I think that's the key thing that I heard you mention around the role of a leader in that. They have to exemplify being what the change looks like. And until they do that, we can't inspire and connect teams and create that sense of belonging that we all want to have because we don't really have the role model or the behavioral shift really underpinning that. And I'm I'm assuming that's certainly been what you've witnessed in your experience as well. Yes, it has. And and also the uh, fascinating thing about when we focus on being before the doing the doing actually feels less effort, like it takes less effort, but it's counterintuitive. And so, you know, that's why having experiential learning and like you said, if you're doing a change initiative, you've got to put people, create an environment where you're putting people in the space of like, imagine the change is happening. Who would you need to be? What would that look like? And they start experimenting with it so that when the change happens, it's not the first time they're in it, um, and and so that way they can sustain it more when the consultant leaves. Right? It's like <laughs> I love it. I think it makes it makes me think of kind of almost a, a metaphor at a personal level of something that I went through in my early twenties, which was reading a lot of books about personal change and development and hoping somehow that the books would magically change me and kind of do the work for me. And I wonder if in organizations we've had this hope that by restructuring everything again and again and reorganizing and reshifting that somehow that external change would mean that we would never actually have to do the work ourselves because it does take a little bit of personal risk and some discomfort for leaders to actually go through that process. Does that resonate for you? Yes. Um, and it takes personal transformation. It's like if, um, you know, one of the things, uh, and I'm sure it's a, a in underpinning of, of your work too is the skill of coaching. And so if we think of leader as coach, 
one of the things I, I learned in my coach training, which was so powerful, is you can only coach someone to the degree to which you are willing to be coached. And so, you know, our transformation, the amount of change we can inspire in others is only to the extent that we are actually changing ourselves. So unless leaders are really willing and open to see what's not working, um, you know, we have to confront, God knows I've, (laughs) even in the last few years, have confronted things that, you know, were not easy. Um, But through doing that, I became stronger. Um, I became a better leader in the work that I do. Yeah, that's so potent. And listening to you speak then, Jean-Maria, I almost had this flashback to my childhood of my mom saying to me, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so often we'll prescribe things to our team and to our organization, and we won't be on board as a leader to do them ourselves. And I think that's, as you said, it's just the big, it's a misstep, you know, that has to come before the rest of the change. And I want to, you know, you've, you've spoken a lot around this idea of bringing the being into the human. And I want to shift into this idea of this sort of head-heart connection in leadership. Um, And I think that to connect to our heart as a leader, it does require some of this uncomfortable work and that shift to being who we need to be. But I'd love for you to share with us, um, do you have any practical ways or tips where a leader might be able to start on this journey to shifting to being who they need to be to, to lead in that way? Sure. So um, I would definitely say that that one question I mentioned earlier is the first step is, and often when I bring this question into my programs, people will think of an individual, like a person. I will say, who would you need to be? And they'll go, I don't know. Let me think. Um, I might need to be, you know, so-and-so. And I'm like, no, that's actually what I refer, what I mean is the way of being. So I might need to be more patient or more giving or more, um, uh, determined, persistent, um, open, right? And so once they, so that's kind of the first step to, to move from head to heart is let's say, you know, I, I need to uh, mobilize my team to achieve a specific result. And when I ask that question to myself, who would I need to be? Um, one of the answers might be, I need to be open, I need to be um, or open-minded because people are going to make mistakes. They're going to go through their change process. And so the first step is that. And then the question is, how can I get more curious and, and tap into people's emotions and also how they're feeling? What, bringing the genuine back into connection, right? Because when we're in our head too much, we're basically analyzing, we're judging, and we're making decisions. And some of those are good and some are bad, depending on, you know, the end result. But if we're in our heart, the question I would ask then is, what does my heart know? What does my heart want to say in this moment? And so there are definitely questions that can move us from our head to our heart to help us stay there. But like you said, it takes that emotional intelligence to recognize, whoa, I am way in my head right now. How can I bring my energy back down to my heart and genuinely connect? 
Now, I want to draw together, um, and I'm, I'm really curious if this is actually sort of true, so it's a little bit of a, a theory that I'm hearing as well. And I know you're sitting in an art studio right now. You are an, an author, a speaker, uh, and you know, a leader in the field of, of, of people and culture, but also an artist and many other things. And you were speaking earlier about this concept of being a generalist and about leaders being more than just this kind of limited subset of skills, that we can have these different... Um, aspects of our personality which actually which actually don't detract from our capacity to lead but actually inform it and so I'm wondering if those creative capacities that you have and that you pour time into you invest in as well as a leader whether that also helps to build that connection between mind and heart and perhaps some of the emotional intelligence the curiosity also that is required in order to really genuinely lead effectively yes I, I, I it's a huge piece. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because many of the things we enjoy outside of work, our passions are actually what inform our work. And so one of the things that um, I've been working on in the last several years is how can I bring more of me to my work? And the more as leaders, we can bring more of ourselves, all the pieces, right? Um, because what I know, I, I was a big compartmentalized leader. I would compartmentalize my career and that was, you know, I never really talked about personal things a lot. And then I had my personal life and I, you know, and, but once I started realizing like I'm a whole human being and the more that I can honor all the things I enjoy and see how I can bring those into my work, the better my work becomes. And then as a leader, how can I honor more of the talents and skills and gifts on my team? Because there's so many hidden talents that we know nothing about because we aren't asking. We're not getting curious. So when I do my art, um, and you know, some people may say, oh, well, that's, you know, if you spend two hours during the day, you're impacting your work. Well, actually, no. When I do my art, I'm in a whole different space that then opens up new ideas to inform my work. And then my work informs my art. And so whatever hobbies and things that we enjoy, it's important to to do those things and to honor them. I think that's a timely reminder for all of us, Jean-Marie, because I think many of us get very caught in the doing, as you've said. And you know, we're having a huge conversation globally right now. Burnout is a word that always comes to mind. Um, mental health, well-being. And I think that we've become so myopically focused on work and what work means. It means, you know, we can have status and nice things, but obviously in many ways it detracts from our joy and our, our connection to self. So what I'm really hearing there is that to have a better connection to self actually requires us to step away from work, which might feel counterintuitive but actually is what helps us really step into our own heart space and explore that. And one other question I wanted to ask as well, Sally, asked such a beautiful question. And um, I, there was one other thing that came up before that when you were speaking about this idea of who we need to be and something that came up for me is, you know, 
on this journey to realizing, you know, for us to drive this organizational change, for us to have a culture of, let's say, psychological safety, who do I need to become? In your experience, is there an element of feedback that needs to happen there? Because something I see very often is leaders are filled with brilliant intention, but they're not always consciously aware of their impact on others. And sort of what advice would you have for us to maybe get that feedback in a way that, you know, doesn't necessarily destroy our confidence or helps us feel open to onboarding that in a way where we can help that inform our behavior? Yes. Um, So there's absolutely a way that we can look at that and and the fastest way is to ask the people we work with some targeted questions that gather that feedback and you know I always say that before you attempt to ask them you have to be willing and open to hearing what the answers are Um, I have a set of questions um, on a sketch note on how to for example how to increase psychological safety and one of those questions centers around what you just mentioned, which is, you know, it's kind of like, um, who do I need to be that would help you become more successful? It's something like that. I don't have it right in front of me. But those kinds of questions, when we ask people that we work with and get that information, is so helpful. Um, you know, what is it that I'm doing that's just detracting from our success, right? It's like when we start asking those deeper questions, and like I said, we're willing to hear the answers and do something about it, then transformation happens. Then that environment becomes a lot more safe because when we can become vulnerable as leaders and we're willing to see our blind spots, the areas that we could improve in, um, and we get that information from our team and then we make that change, it's it's like gold. It totally is. But gosh, doesn't it feel yucky and uncomfortable in the first instance? <laughs> yes, it's it's not easy. Um, you know, I've experienced that. I, I'm a big, I, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And so oh, I hear when, uh, so quality, you know, I learned in the consulting world how important quality is, right? And so I would get obsessed about making sure everything had high impact and quality. And so when I when it didn't or when I disappointed someone, you know, I took it so, so personally. But in the end, um, I mean, I, I chuckle now because I realize, like, I'm just human. There's no, you know, I can't, I'm not, per- perfection doesn't exist. It only existed in my mind. Um, so if we can just show more of our humanity and, and the fact that, yeah, we make mistakes. It's okay to make a mistake. Um, then feel people feel safer. Yeah, I, that really resonates for me as well, uh, Jean Marie. I think my journey from being a finance lawyer in an environment where perfectionism, perfectionism is to some extent expected, I've noticed actually that the as I sort of uh, loosen the grip of perfectionism on myself, I've actually become much better at receiving criticism and much more open to feedback because I don't have that tight grip of needing everything to be perfect. And it almost like there's a softening almost in a physical way because I can, you know, really genuinely say, please give me feedback I want to learn. Whereas, in, you know, as a finance lawyer, feedback meant I'm wrong and I've failed. And, and that's a really bad thing. So I love how you've framed that um, in, in your own journey as well. Um, and just sort of, I think, zooming in here, uh, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, you talked about these different sort of almost phases of transformation that you've experienced and this shift towards becoming a more authentic 
leader or more authentically yourself through your leadership. I'd love for you to share with, with us and our listeners what the one major lesson you've had on your journey and perhaps if you have any advice for someone who's struggling through a phase of transformation or questioning how to step into a more authentic way of leadership, what advice you might have for that person? Yeah, great question. Um, a big lesson learned for me has been to request what I need to speak up when something feels off, you know, because we all have a level of intuition that some of us tap into, some of us may not feel it yet or, but it's all there. It's possible to tap into. And whether it's in our gut, in our audio, auditory, in our head, whatever it is, if something doesn't feel right, it's not right. And so it's so important to speak it. And, you know, the biggest uh, tip I can give there is you don't have to make anyone feel wrong. You can just simply say, something doesn't feel right here. Great opening, right? There you go. Something doesn't feel right here. And then you open the dialogue. Um, And so, uh, and to kind of answer your question about, you know, if we're struggling, um, I actually just read uh, the book Radical Acceptance, and it's a beautiful book. Um, And one of the things I've been practicing around that is, in struggle, is, again, you know, the, the recovering perfectionist doesn't like to see and even experience the emotion of failure or or something's not right. I have found that the more I can just say, I'm feeling angry or I'm frustrated or I'm whatever that emotion is, allow and accept it to be there in the moment and to actually just get curious about it without judgment and even asking, I often ask myself the questions like, what is this, what is this about? And then what is this really about? What's underneath this that's really important to me that's either not happening or, or not happening in the way I would want? What do I most need? What does my body need? And what might I need to let go of? Um, so it's just that self-inquiry. And again, it takes a bit of emotional intelligence to 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 go there and remember but um when we're struggling i think the most powerful thing we can do is honor the struggle recognize it acknowledge it and then kind of dive in and explore it a little bit without judgment and i think you're really speaking to something that resonates so much for us at human leaders as well as this concept of almost taking radical responsibility for meeting our own needs to the extent that we can really zooming in and that self-inquiry about what are my needs and how can I meet those right now rather than getting into the blame game or externalizing and, and, and pushing it out there. And that also, I think, inherently creates you know, a sense of empowerment. It empowers us because we either can then take steps to look after ourselves, take steps to uh, maybe take a moment, take a breather, whatever it is to uh, step into our, our own power and to connect with the moment and connect with ourselves. And I have to say, I, I believe um, Radical Obsessant, uh, Acceptance is Tara Brock and I'm a massive, massive fan of, of her work. So <laughs> so glad you mentioned that. We'll put, the, put that in the show notes as well. But yeah, beautifully put. Thank you. Absolutely. And I just really want to acknowledge how much I appreciate, I guess, the acknowledgement that 
leaders are human beings first. That's really what I got from that. Jean Reen, I really appreciate that because I think so often when we step into leadership roles, we assume there's this level of expectation on our expertise, on our knowledge, but also on who and how we should behave. And I personally know in my very first leadership role, I sort of morphed into this version of myself who I thought I needed to be to be that role. And there are so many moments where I was like, oh, this isn't, this doesn't feel right. This feels wrong even, um, or this doesn't really this isn't really how I would authentically do this, but I just didn't have the emotional intelligence or frankly, the audacity to stop and say, actually, this isn't okay for me. So I just want to say thank you for giving leaders permission to actually acknowledge their humanness in that moment. I think that's so, so, so critical that we remember that we are people and human beings first. And that's actually part of what makes us so powerful as leaders. Yes. And and when we do that, what what actually sort of that counterintuitive thing happens where we think if we go into the emotion and recognize our humanness, it'll be harder, but actually it helps us move through the struggle faster. And so I, I found myself, even when just acknowledging the emotion, suddenly like an hour later, I actually feel better. <laughs> so, you know, it's our bodies and our, and our hum- humanity. There's so much wisdom there if we just keep listening and honor it. I think those are just such beautiful words for us to end with, uh, Jean Marie. I think that's, you know, really honoring that the vulnerability and how that is you know, maybe in the moment, that little bit of discomfort, but then there's this release and this sense of, ah, oh, safety, I'm being my whole self. And and that's what matters most as a human and as a leader. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today on We Are Human Leaders. It's been a delight to speak with you. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this powerful conversation with Jean-Marie de Giovanna. For me, the insight about speaking up when something feels off really hit home deep. Having the courage to listen to our intuition without blaming or attacking, by simply observing what we're feeling, something doesn't feel right here. We open the dialogue to dig into what's really happening in the present moment, creating that psychologically safe space to explore and come to a deeper mutual understanding. We'd love to hear what stood out most about this conversation for you. You can find and follow Jean Marie's work at www.jeanmariespeaks.com and find details of her book and more in the show notes. It was a delight to have you with us. See you again soon. Thank you so much for sharing this space with us. If you're ready to join us and be part of the Human Leaders community, find us at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Thanks for being on the journey with us and we'll see you next time.